Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast, your go-to source for insights and strategies in the HVAC, plumbing, and roofing industries. I'm Corey Barrier, here to guide you through transformative approaches to business and mindset. Each episode will explore unique methods, focusing on identifying and addressing the core challenges in your field. Our goal is to equip you and your team with practical solutions that foster growth and success. So whether you're tuning in for the first time or you're a longtime listener, get ready to dive into a wealth of knowledge and expertise. Let's begin our journey to success together. This is the successful life. It's Corey Barrier. Yeah, come learn with me. Take you down the path of our journeys. This is the successful life. It's time to take what you learn. Apply it to your life. It's your turn. To live a successful life. You are tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. Three, two. Thank you for listening to the Successful Life Podcast. We have no dues or fees, so please refer to this podcast to a friend. Make sure you rate, review, and hit the subscribe button. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Successful Life Podcast. I am your host, Corey Barrier, and my guest today is Kit Cummings. Kit, what's up, my man? How are you? What's going on? Thanks for having me, bro. Absolutely. So Kit is an author, uh, speaker, and uh, the founder of the Power a founder of the Power of Peace Project, which is the acronym they used acronym POP for that, right? Mm-hmm. So um, tell me, uh, dude. Tell me all about this project. I'm so interested. Yeah, yeah. It's been a crazy 10 years, you know, from the idea to the creation to the evolution of this thing to bring us to the current date. So, you know, I was at about 12 years ago, I was at a crossroads and I was trying to figure out, you know, how can I do what I love to do and what I'm best at? And because uh, I got to do that for a good long run, 25 to 40, you know, speaking, teaching, training, preaching. And so maybe actually, you know, I know that I know this is what you you and I we're going to get to the project. But, you know, you've got quite a story before that. So, <laughs> so maybe let's dial back a little bit uh, earlier in your life and and some of the things that you went through and, and some of the adversities that you've overcome. Yeah, that's, that's a good place super damn important, I think. <laughs> yeah, none of this stuff happens without that stuff. That's right. right. That's right. And it really is the epitome of turning a curse into a blessing, right? Mm, yes. So, well, I grew up here in um, in the Atlanta area, and um, I'm 55, and so my whole stretch has been in and around Atlanta, North Georgia, and so I'm a homegrown product here, and um, least likely guy to become a preacher. And that's like for real, for real. And nobody saw that coming, especially me. Uh, cause I was, I wasn't that guy, you know, I wasn't a religious kid. I didn't go to church. I didn't study the Bible. I didn't, I wasn't that kid. You know, my, like a lot of people, my challenge was, um, you know, a dysfunctional household because of alcoholism. And so, you know, my, my dad, God bless him, rest his soul. That was his battle and he never successfully overcame it. Yeah. Um, his dad, same battle, no success. And so I was 
you know, that apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And, and that was my story. And, and so at a young age, you know, drugs and alcohol became a part of my hustle, you know, how to get through and, and um, meaning how do I, how do I go through life? How do I do this thing? And I was learned to medicate, you know, cause my household had a lot of drama going on in it. And so, you know, I was a very sensitive kid, um, very social kid. And so you put all that together and I found alcohol at the age of like 12, 13 years old. And man, I, it was my friend right off the rip. And then, you know, drugs came along, but I was an athlete and I was a pretty decent student and socially, you know, I always did all, did pretty good. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And so I hung with the right crowd, went to the right school, you know, teachers, coaches, principals loved me, but I had this whole other life. I basically had three lives. I had my jock life because I, I was a, a pretty good athlete, played a little bit in college. And, you know, I was one way with those guys, the popular kid hanging with the, you know, athletes, cheerleaders. they got the right girlfriend. And then I had my spiritual life, which was a total sham because I had a very religious girl, a very spiritual girlfriend all the way through high school, pretty much. And so that brought in this young life FCA church thing, which <laughs> just because I was using my girlfriend, And so I had that kind of life. And then I had my real life, which was my inner circle. And there were six of us and we just tore some stuff up and there was drinking and drugging and fighting and breaking the law and, you know, getting in trouble and crashing cars and getting arrested and just all that as a kid that was looked at as a, Oh, he's a good kid. I I mean, how the hell do you even keep all that together? Like that's like dating three crazy women at one time i mean it's a lot that's a lot it's a lot of hats to wear a lot of i mean people deal with their drama different ways you know some act out and become that person others run and hide and become that person some become a chameleon which is what i did and so i would be what you wanted me to be now it, it has served me now because growing up I learned how to connect and make friends with all kinds of people. You know, I mean, really, I was, I, I had all kinds of friends. So it was not a good thing then because I literally would do what I needed to do. You know, I was right. the guy that wasn't afraid to do anything. I'd take chances, thrill seeking, you know, living on the edge. Well, now that's a part of my job and it's a good thing. But back then it took me into a lot of areas. So, so fast forward on through college, you know, <laughs> I went from Walton high school partying like a rock star to university of Georgia <sighs> partying like a hall of famer, oh, man. And, you know, and then graduated into the rock and roll business, you know, at a young age as a right out of school. And so I graduated into a legendary, you know, party status. So, and, you know, Stevie, Stevie, well, he's Steve. Um, wow. High tech, Steve. What the hell? I can't think of his last surely to God Smith, Steve Smith. How would I know him? Through Nick. Y'all are all about the same. Maybe, maybe. Anyway, it's okay. So I get to the end of that run, and I'm 25, and I am burnt out. So burnout at the age of 25 sucks. And I was tired of drinking, and I was was just, you know, it was time. and, And so I made a stab at trying to get sober. And, uh, and then God intervened and I, I met a guy that changed my life and he was a, he happened to be a minister, but he was young and he was cool and he was a great athlete. And I was like, man, what's up with you? And he started studying that book with me. And I did that 
like I did everything in my life, which is all out. I don't do anything a little bit. So I'm either trying to save the world or tear some stuff up. And so I went after it. And so after I'd been around him, them, this church, which was new for me, I'd never been a part of a church. You know, I was just lit up. Um, I decided, shoot, I want to do this all the way. How do I become a preacher? And so I got on that track. And when I went to ministry, I really shocked everybody. It me family, friends. People thought this, this can't be real. You know, he's joined a cult. I mean, what is it? And so, uh, you know, but that, that little, you know, run lasted from 25 to 40. And so, yeah, I'm married, had a couple of beautiful kids. I'm leading congregations. They keep giving me bigger congregations. And by the time I'm 33, I'm in charge of about 4,000 people. And it was heavy. And so by the time I got to 40, I was out of gas again. And so burnout at 25, which led to my transformation, burnout again at 40. And now all of a sudden I'm getting thirsty again. All right. So wait a minute. All right. So I under, you know, of all people, I understand the burnout at 25, 100%. But I need you to walk me through this burnout after you started preaching. I mean, I, I can take a guess, but I'd rather you just tell me. And by the way, I'll tell you an interesting fact. My little brother, who uh, tomorrow turns, I'm 41, so he's turning 39, I guess. And he is right out of out of Methodist school. He's got his own church already. Wow. He just it just started, and he's he wasn't like me. He wasn't he wasn't one of us. Yeah. Right. But still unlikely for my little brother of all people. It's still hard for me to wrap my head around. So anyway, yeah. I, I just thought I'd interject there, but go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. So that so burnout. The answer to your question is <clears throat> somewhere along the way and why this is a challenging profession that people get into is you get a lot of exposure. You get a lot of, you know, accolations and validations and, you know, uh, people telling you you're awesome. And then now all of a sudden you're in the seat where you, you're the marriage expert, even if you're not, you're the <laughs> child rearing expert, you're the personal character expert. I mean, it's like, and when you're young and you're talented and you're ambitious, if you're not careful, at least with me, that calling, which was a honest calling, and the calling still on my life. It's just a different, you know, way of doing what God called me to do way back then. Sure. It becomes a career. And so then it was like, man, I want that next promotion. And when there's this big conference in another city, I want to be chose to give the keynote. And it, and it's, you start protecting what you have and growing the church now becomes a means to an end where it used to be just a pure. And then, you know, it's, it's subtle. You don't realize it's happening, but it's happening. So and the marriage, you know, was unattended. And so, you know, as I grew in my ambitious, I'm an ambitious guy, you know, and that can be a very dangerous thing in the ministry, right? So I don't know. I don't know. So this is so, this is so fascinating. Like I can, I'm on the same page. I could see how, I could see how the almost fame. Let's just call it fame. That that could kind of go. That could kind of go to your head a a little bit, unbeknownst, right? Yeah, and you're humble. You're you're yeah. You're, you're not. I'm not running around arrogant. If you'd have come, you wouldn't have said, "Dang, get over yourself." But every time they stand and and cheer after you preach, or they laugh at all your jokes, and they line up to come and shake your hand, it makes you feel good. And when there's a little boy inside that's still wounded, 
Oh. By the way, my dad passed when I was in college, and unfortunately, it wasn't an honorable, you know, way to go. And that that jacked me up for a while. I went dark, and um, and so uh, you know, over thirty years, I've I've healed my relationship with my father. It was such a significant relationship. Would you like but, to expand on that at all? Yeah, I mean, he, you know, it was it was here, and then he was gone, and it was a, you know, it was a decision. <laughs> that he, was, made. he made he made a decision to. Yeah. Okay, so I got it. It was, it was drug and alcohol related, but it was also just a, a terribly dark time, and so it was he checked out. But you know something, kid? I'm I'm actually glad that I had you explain that because you know when we talk about drugs and alcohol your next round could kill you your next drink could kill you that we're not talking about the physical beer we're talking about you that could be the last straw that makes you take yourself out correct and that's what we mean by it can kill you yeah yeah and um and i went through my dark period you know, yeah. later in life, and I didn't understand him, and I was mad at him, and I, why'd you leave me? And, you know, we weren't cool when he passed. You know, we were in a, you know, very contentious. So it was worst case scenario for me. I didn't get a chance to say I'm sorry. He never got to see me become. He never got, you know, yeah. it was just, but that was it. Now I look back, and it's like, man, my dad gave his life for me. Because if he hadn't died, I don't know that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. I don't know if I'd have been broken to get to the point at 25 where I was ready for God's call. I don't know if I would have, you know, been able to get through the storm that came at 40. So when you're living in that bubble and people put you on a pedestal, um, it's very subtle and you can can act humble but inside you're you're chasing that next validation. Because if the little boy in there is still wounded. And now he's all grown up and talented and has a lower big following. He's still wounded. And so you start feeling like a, well, I shouldn't speak for anybody. I started feeling like a fraud because I'm like, if if anybody ever knew me, they would know I'm not the rock star they think I am. And so you start feeling like just a poser. So like the imposter syndrome. Hell yeah. And then you start creating an exit strategy. It's like, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm burnt out. You know, I could always just, you know, go do something else. Why don't we go make some money now? And so, you know, I decided to make that move and they didn't let me go or chase me off. They actually tried to get me to stay. And I said, I got to go. And so I went into this corporate wilderness experience where I'm trying to figure out how to support my family and, you know, doing hustle, you know, commission-based jobs, whether it was banking or real estate or insurance, I'm just like hustling miserable because I wasn't doing what I knew I was put on the planet to do. Well, and, And you went from hero to zero. Oh, bro. And it was public. Okay. Right. So when I went, yeah, you're asking great questions. So, um, you know, when I get out, now all of a sudden I find my marriage is on the rocks and I didn't know it, you know, surrounded by a staff and deacons and elders and, you know, congregation that made me feel like I got a great marriage, you know, not so much. So once I got out there and got thirsty again, you know, that marriage fell apart. And so now, and I went crazy for a minute, you know, all the things that I'd been thinking, you know, all those years, well, if I could do this, I would do it, but I can't because, you know, you live in, people see you when you're out. They're watching to see what you do because you do that with pastors, right? Or preachers. And so I kind of got mad at God because when I left the ministry and started struggling, 
all those folks that were so loyal to me, ride or die, they were not there anymore because I was now, a, you know, a good story. And there were rumors flying around about me that I was doing this and doing that. And it was terrible. And the internet was pretty new. And so I was reading some stuff about me in chat groups and it just, it was all my worst fears coming to, to fruition because I was always desperately afraid of failing. And, you know, cause when you have this kind of adult child of an alcoholic thing, you're always wondering when's the other shoe going to drop? When's it all going to fall apart? Cause it always does. And it's this subtle thing inside. Well, when everything started tumbling, then it was like, well, I was right. Here it goes. And so I went away and I ran to the dark places, man. I shook my fist at God and I said, you know, I'm going to show you. And I went hard again, hanging out clubs and driving drunk and crashing cars. But I'm the preacher now that's doing all that. And that was a great story for everybody to tell. And so I was, you know, I just kind of became the thing that I feared. Well, in 2005, I decided, you know, I can't drink anymore. I got remarried and um, wonderful. I mean, I, I have the marriage I always dreamed of. I wish I could have been the man that I needed to be in my first one. But you are, you are what you are, man. You do the best where you're at. And so God gave I'm, it. I'm on number three, brother. So, you yep. know, and, and, and I have the same, same feeling about my wife is that, yeah. you know, I do believe, look, don't get me wrong. Do we, do we have our ups and downs? Of course, every marriage does. But yep. for the 95% of the time, she's my best friend. There you go. Yeah. And that's what, you know, and, and we evolve and we get better. I'm, I'm a better yeah. partner now, you know. Absolutely. And so, um, so anyway, I came through that, but I was out there hustling and, and something um, made me want to go and serve. I mean, really do service work. And, um, and so I started serving at the Atlanta Union Mission and loving on some homeless brothers. And then that led me to working with some incarcerated guys. And because a lot of times those things overlapped and, and then I was invited to go into a prison in 2009 and it absolutely changed my life. And all I can say is somehow, some way, when I walked in there, a light came on and God was saying, this is where I want you to be. I want you to help these men. And at the time I was, I was working a couple of hustles and I was making six figures and support my family. And all of a sudden God drops this on my heart. And I'm like, <laughs> really? <laughs> there ain't, you no, ain't no money in this God. What am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> So I end up walking away from that money, you know, the guaranteed money and, um, and going into this crazy world. And, um, because I just, I, I loved it. It lit me up in a way the ministry never had because what I needed, and this, this is so huge. I needed a congregation with no judgment. I needed a place where I could be me and just be everything that I, I mean, no, no posing at all. Right. So I would start preaching things. Well, you know, it was, it was not going in and preaching Jesus. This was going in and preaching change. And man, we could, we could create something together and we could change this broken system. And it was all about hope and dreams. Um, but I found a place where everything was open. I could tell them they're my worst mistakes and they laughed, you know, I could cry in front of them and man, they were there for me. And these were the ride or die guys that I thought I had no and so two million men behind the razor wire became my church. And they helped me figure out who I really was because there was no bullshit anymore. It was just raw. It was real. Yeah. And uh, so I kept going. And then it was I was I was doing prison tours through states, and we'd do like 15 prisons in a week, three shows a day on a little tour, 
van and i mean it was i was so when you I say was, a show tell me what you mean i i picture you going in it, you know it just like we'd have a circle in a you know in a in a 12 step meeting i would exp- I, I i assume by what you were saying you were going in talking to people like that am i wrong mm, yeah oh. it got to be where they promoted it you know i was riding with uh prison fellowship at the time they sponsored me right so it'd be prison fellowship who's the biggest 800 pound gorilla you know in the prison ministry you know space not a close second they're all over the world they put me on a tour and so it was prison fellowship presents kit cummings power peace project and we'd gather a big crowd of inmates and i'd come and just light them up you know and, and tell the story of this peace movement that was developing in the prisons and then i took it and did South Africa. And then I took it and did, um, and then I took it to Ukraine and then I took it to Mexico and Mexico blew my mind because I did a prison down in Mexico, this genuine cartel controlled prison. And we did our program because then it it had become a 40 day program. I had written a couple books around it. And so now like for instance, how it's evolved and I'll get to the way it morphed into the kid thing in a minute, but I've got a program going out Hancock state prison. Okay, down in Sparta, Georgia, and we're right in the middle of it now. So <laughs> it's so fun and fascinating. So what I do with the administration, once they invite me and say, hey, we want to do your thing, I say, okay, I need you to gather me um, 100 men that have influence in a maximum security prison. Mm. Well, the program, we came up with 50, but they're pretty much the right guys. And what I mean is we all have all the major gangs represented. And so, you know, there, the big ones are pretty much the ones your listeners would know. We have Crips and Bloods and Gangster Disciples and the Muslims who, in a lot of ways, operate as a separate group. Um, and then we have Aryan Brotherhood We're working on the Latin gangs. So they never let these guys come together, but they do for our program. So in the gym every Thursday, I'll be headed down there tomorrow, we'll get with this group, you know, of rivals. And then we start working together and teaching them how to work together to create peace in the prison so that I can go to the administration and get them what they want. And so it becomes an incentive based program and uh, miracles happen. I That's mean, I, genius. It's oh so, my God. It's also scary as fuck. <laughs> you know, it's fun though. It's oh. like I've, I've developed a way to get close to very heavy guys and disarm them and win their trust pretty quickly. And so right now, shoot, the, the head of the you know, GDs and the head of the Bloods, I've not just kind of gotten to know the ones that are leaving it, but I'm, I'm becoming friends with them. And, um, and now, now I go to these guys that are hated and feared and never, ever do programs. And the big, biggest problem we have with our program is always demand. I, I can't work with as many people as want to be in it because once the word gets out that, man, the power piece is here, um, everybody wants to get in. And so it's, it's so simple. You get the right guys in the room and say, look, here's what's in it for you. You know, more peace means better life for you. Sure. What peace means the administration is not scared of you and coming and shaking you down and sending you the hole and beating the hell out of you. And so both, both sides learn to kind of try to work together. And then all of a sudden Crips and Bloods are sitting in the same circle and we're studying King and Gandhi and Mandela and teaching them about the power of the peacemaker. And I teach him, look, stay in your gang, man. I ain't trying to get you out of your right. gang. I would put an expiration date on me. And so, you know, stay in your gang, but let me teach you how to be a more powerful leader. 
and, and a powerful man is able to change a heart. Violence is lazy. Violence is easy. Man, you work with, you make an enemy a friend so that y'all can have better lives. And now you still got, you're still in your family, your organization, but you know, whatever your hustle is, is better. You don't have to take a friend, you know, to guard the shower door because <laughs> you're worried about somebody coming in. Right. You don't have to worry about the chow hall, you know, because somebody usually they do business in the chow hall if they want to get you. Right, right. So all those are things they want. They just don't think it's possible. So <laughs> I say, what if we could give you the tools to make what you think is possible possible? And that's how it works. My it, mind is blown right now. I, I, I have interviewed some amazing people people that uh you know th- this shit this is unfucking real it's not unre- <laughs> like it's un like it all makes sense to me it makes complete sense yeah but who in the hell obviously you would have ever thought in a million years this would have worked Attention contractors of the Successful Life podcast. Want to supercharge your business decisions? We've got something just for you. Head over to our website, SuccessfulLifePodcast.com, and click on the free download button to grab your copy of Warning When Hiring a Leadership Coach. Equip yourself with the insights you need to make informed decisions for your business. Don't miss out. It was crazy. I just kept stumbling upon the next experiment. And what I found was you've got an army of guys that have never been asked to help. Okay. It's always just lock them down if they screw up. And, you know, if, if you treat a man like an animal, he will bite you. If you treat him like a man, he will treat you like a man. And there's mutual respect. And so I found that that is a human trait, especially among men. We want to be respected. And when somebody respects me, then I'm willing to give respect but they're living in a culture where they don't think it's even possible. And it's like, no. So I show them pictures of, you know, crowds of, of convicts in all kind of different colors in different States, peace signs with their certificates and arm in arm with their rivals. And I show them, don't tell me it's not possible. I show them the picture of the cartel guys in Tijuana that are all doing the peace signs, holding their certificates. And I'm like, don't tell me it's not possible. You know, the dude that started this thing with me is a kid that grew up to be an MS-13 gang leader. MS-13 is supposed to be impenetrable. You're not supposed to be. Well, we did. We infiltrated. And that guy became a peacemaker. And so I've seen too much. I've done work on death row. Um, Three of my friends on Alabama's death row have been executed. Okay, so I've lost my friends. So that changes the way you see the death penalty. And so then they started using their influence on the streets. So now I got all these in, but this is hilarious. One of my, no, a series of my books has my damn cell phone number on the back of it. So I got thousands of convicts around the country and they're getting out. Hey bro, you said to hit you up when we're out, man. We want to be a part of the peace movement. And so it's an army of guys that are coming out wanting to do something. And, and like at this point, you started something that can't be stopped. I mean, all in all, nobody would want to stop it. But my point is, is that you're convincing the worst of the worst, the scary, the, the, the people that most people fear. Yeah. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, fear. Their members of their own gang fear them. 
Yeah. And here you come walking in and putting them all together. Yeah, it's crazy. That's bizarre. Yeah, it is. And then they they just start believing in new things. And then they started expressing their heart for what are you going to do for the young dudes? You know, our little brothers and our sons and our grandsons. I mean, how are you going to keep those? We don't want them coming here. That gave birth to the program we're doing in the schools. Okay, now the, the kids look at these. I mean, this is, you think about it. Their world is, you know, gangster rap and hip hop and, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and Grand Theft Auto, and, you know, that's their world. Even if it's a kid up in the suburbs in Milton, he's all thug life, you know, and he's not hard at all. (laughs) So they kind of glorify this world. So when I bring a program in and show them real pictures and videos of real-life gangsters becoming peacemakers, they're like, that's cool. And I'm like, all right, well, let's do it here. And so what we do instead of you know, in schools, who are the gang leaders? The athletes, the popular kids, the strong and talented and cool ones. And so we bring them together for our program and start teaching them how to create their positive influence in the school. And so the inmates are becoming role models for these kids. Well, that now gives the inmates a purpose because they've never had one. You're, you, I'll go back to them and I'll say, listen, you are changing those brothers out there. Don't, don't let them down. And then I'll go back to the to students and I'll say, those brothers are putting their lives on the line to be role models. Do not let them down. And then they kind of, it feeds one another. Oh my God. And it's become a, a movement. It's genius. Isn't that wild? But it's, now check this for those that are biblically oriented, right? There's a scripture where it says, that God uses the lowly and despited, uh, despised and hated things of the world to shame the wise. Okay, so he said, the last shall be first. I'll be with the least of these, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner. And so that scripture is being fulfilled because it's like these hate. I get some flack sometimes because I'm sitting there talking about a death row inmate who has changed his life, and that hurts some people. And I'm, I have to say, look, the reason I'm doing this is for the victims. Okay. What do you mean it hurts? So wait, explain that. We go back just a hair. All right. So when you say that a, de- a death row inmate gets executed, and how how who is that? I'm sorry. I may, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying if I'm I blast. Okay. I believe in stories, and this is a great story, and the world needs a story. Sure. Hope and change in the darkness, and so when these hated, feared forgotten men who have hurt loved ones of other people all of a sudden become these peacemaker role models the victims got it out there now i understand now i got it sorry but here's what happened for me to understand it better is in the course of this thing our oldest son was a soldier and he's out now but he did four combat tours two in afghanistan two in iraq one as a sniper uh, squadron leader so he's seen war it's affected his mind he is doing awesome beautiful wife beautiful boys you know great god but he deals with the the effects yeah. of war every single day well when he was home on leave on one of his tours um he went downtown with his wife to a party and there was somebody there that had bad intentions and nobody knew him and he ended up slapping a girl and justin took him outside and handled it well the guy ran off and came back and got him back out the yard had a knife 
and he stabbed Justin all up and cut him. From I mean, there's no reason he should have been alive, but he was combat trained. They didn't wait on the ambulance. They got him to Grady. Three hours, they saved his life. Well, I went to the prison. You know, I told you I can be open there. Yeah, I can say things you can't say in a church. You know what I'm right. saying? That day was really heavy because I had all my guys, you know, and um, and I told them what happened, and I cried in front of them. And that moved them, you know. And so as I'm talking about this guy that almost killed our war hero son, it was hard for them because a lot of them are there for violent crimes. And now all of a sudden I'm talking about a violent crime that affected my, my own family. And then a hand goes up in the back. And one brother says, what's his name? And I was like, our son, Justin. They went, nah, what's the other dude's name? And I said, Michael. And they said, what's his last name? And I was like, uh, that's, I know why they want his name. Oh, yeah. And then he started going up, and they're like, what's his name, bro? And then this guy said, uh, we won't kill him. We'll just touch him. And they wanted to get this guy for me. Of course. Uh, now, now, all of a sudden, as the victim family, which was now a seat I'm sitting in, I was tempted to go ahead and push that button. And I didn't. But I felt how the victims, and I think God wanted me to feel the victims yeah. of violent crime so I could not just love the inmate, the offender, right. the prisoner, but love the family that got affected by every crime affects somebody, right? Man, that's tough. And so that was key. But but what I found was, man, I found people that are willing to die for me. But yeah. I also found some people that are willing to kill for me. And I thought anybody in churches that probably would do either. (laughs) We're we're part of a great church. I love it, man. I mean, I'm sure that's cool, but nothing lights me up or shows me God's power more than in prison. That is insane. Yeah. It's been a crazy ride. Now I'll tell you what I was going to remind. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go. I was going to remind you, um, before we started recording, uh, so Kit and I got on the phone one day, and I, I won't ever really forget. I will never forget our phone call. Um, you had were telling me a story that you, uh, I guess it was an uh, a, a NFL football player, NFL player, mm-hmm. um, was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and somebody went in to rob somebody and he happened to be in the car mm-hmm. and now he's tell, tell the story if you don't mind. Yeah. He's a kid that, you know, grew up tough area Savannah, joined a gang because that's what you did to make it through where he lived. And you know, that thing is for life. And so he grew up in that life, great football player, huge guy, all American in high school, all American in college makes it to the league. And a hundredth overall pick in the 2000 draft, excuse me. Uh, yeah, something like that. And, uh, but anyway, he's drafted the year before Michael Vick and he, he's here, uh, the Falcons. And so he was, um, he played some as a rookie, which is hard to do. So he had talent, but then he stayed connected in that world, kept one foot in the streets and one foot in the NFL. And which is kind of like, you know, in the ministry, one foot, over here at one foot kind of dabbling over here and um it got him jammed up he had a, a, a friend that he went and gave a ride to do a thing and he didn't really know what was going on but he was still hanging with the wrong kind of guys 
an armed robbery went down. His friend split. He ended up getting charged, thought he could beat it. And he ended up doing, you know, state time. And he, he luckily only did like four or five years. But, you know, now he's a felon, couldn't get back in the NFL, lost all his money, lost everything. So, it, it, and I think the impactful thing that you had said, you know, not very far off of what you just said, but you said, you know, Corey, imagine, and I, you don't quote me on this, but I believe this is what you said. Corey, imagine waking up being an NFL football, you know, a football player for the Falcons, and then that night you're laying down getting ready to go to prison. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. a tough yeah. – that's tough. That's what yeah, it's that's, like. That's a lot of what we're working with kids. So the obvious place to start with the schools was the inner city schools where youth gang and violence, you know, is, you know, incarceration and homicide is going to be, you know, the biggest threats. But then the more I started doing it and it worked, I started getting called to the suburbs, you know, because of overdose and suicide and accidental death. So we're losing kids to the streets in the inner cities, but we're losing kids to themselves in the outer cities, you know, the suburbs. And either way, we're losing kids. So the program we developed was a different version of the one that works so well in the prisons. And But the kids, it's growing really fast. And so the demand, now I'm doing like 80% schools and about 20% prisons. And then I throw in some churches and corporate gigs and stuff. But um, it really has evolved into this youth movement, but the uh, inmates will always be the stars, you know, that, that started it. It's pretty cool. Dude, that's, uh, I mean, like I, I can't, that's amazing. I mean, that's, that's a better story than building a damn company and, and, you know, employing 500 people. Like you've done something that, that really, uh, I guess nobody's ever done. I mean, that's pretty, pretty, that's a, pretty amazing thing to say yeah it's it's um dr king um is one of the biggest influences of my life and just i didn't even know what was happening at university of georgia at 25 um i i read his uh biography and it just it spoke to me and so i started kind of being interested in him over the years and then when we started this thing it was started on his birthday um, his holiday in 2011, that was when our movement officially began. 12 guys signed a peace pledge in honor of his birthday, and we started just kind of building it. You know, so you just had a birthday on that. Yeah, and listen what happened. It was unbelievable. So, um, but that little group of 12, now this prison where it started is no joke. It's the, it's the most violent prison in the state of Georgia. I mean, it's a lock them down prison, and there was five bodies in six weeks which you try to find a prison in the U S that had five different homicides because of gang. That, that was the prison when it started. So what little candy land wow. and those guys started something that spread throughout that prison. And that prison went from worst to first at one institution of the year that year in the state of Georgia and rightly or wrongly. So I got a lot of credit for it when those brothers did the heavy lifting that got me invited. Hey, if you did it there, can you do it here? And it took it to the Midwest and then it got, went out to the West and then it went down across the border. So it was just this crazy ride, but it's always been about Dr. King and, and my process and principles based on the nonviolence things I learned from King and Gandhi and Mandela. And then um, this, I mean, this is, it blew my mind, but this past Monday, um, on Dr. King's holiday, um, I spoke at an event 
and um, where it, we did a little march, and then I spoke at a community event on, on behalf of Dr. King. And the NAACP, the week before here in Atlanta, had requested that I speak at their big event, which is a gala, you know, here yeah. in Atlanta. It's a big deal. They have dignitaries, a huge theater, a show. It's like a Grammy Award kind of feel to it with performances and and they asked me on, on the Friday before the Monday, you know, when Dr. King's uh, holiday. And I said, oh, I would love to do it. And it killed me because I'm like, I would love to do it, but I've already committed. I can't back out of another commitment. And they said, um, no problem. How about if we move you to the end of the slate and we could uh, hit, hit you at the very end? And I said, okay, if I can get there in time. So we work it out that morning. They move me to the front of the program in the morning. and They get me to the place. And I walk in and it's packed. I mean, and there's, everybody's in suits and I'm looking like I always do. And, and, uh, and I'm like, they said, standing room only, uh, you know, and I said, no, I'm speaking. And they said, Oh, okay, let's get you down front. So I go down front and I find the, the NAACP president, make sure they know I'm here. And then they sit me like, you know, in one of the first few rows, they don't tell me anything. And everybody who's speaking is coming out from backstage, you know, and they have a, you know, celebrity MC. And I'm like, is anybody ever going to come get me and tell me right. like, when I speak and what I'm supposed to talk about, how long I have then told me Jack. And so I'm looking at my watch and I'm enjoying the program, but we're getting really near the end of the program. And I'm like, why did they ask me to come speak? You know, if they're not going to let me speak. And uh, I wasn't dissed. I was just kind of confused. Well, at the very end, the president gets up and she said uh, something about, you know, now's when we give our, living the dream award and, you know, whatever. And I'm just kind of half paying attention and, you know, I'm paying attention, but I'm not thinking nothing. And she said, we actually had to lie to the person to get them here to make sure that they were going to be here because they had a, another commitment. And then I'm like, you know, wondering my little antenna goes. <laughs> and so they say my name and ask me to come up front. And they, they awarded me the uh, Dr. King Living the Dream Award from the NAACP. And I, I cried, man. I mean, it was, of course. this was a very, very big deal. On his day, in right. honor of him, from that organization, wow. it was quite a day. So that was last week. And so, I mean, it's that's where this thing has come. And I don't know what's going to happen next. Cause now the You got me, uh, you know, tearing up. That's... <laughs> That I mean, I I can't even imagine. But of all people, like you've done something that I mean, like literally the people that you uh, model after, uh, Dr. King and Gandhi, like that you're doing what they did exactly what they did. I mean, except for you're doing it with much more violent people. <laughs> Holy shit, dude! Yeah, it's uh, I was in. I mean, along the way, there was little points where God would encourage me, you know, through a meeting or a, or a event or an epiphany or whatever. And I had gone to South Africa in 2012 and to go to a Gandhi peace summit. And I got a chance to even get on stage and, and, um, and see where the nonviolent struggle started, which was Gandhi was in Durban, South Africa way back. And he was an attorney and he got kicked off a train because he was the wrong color and that's where he started his thing went back to india came up with his principles he influenced king that then took you know his own take on that that influenced mandela and that's how we have this 
you know, this peace movement around the world that, that happened. And so I'm down there and Dr. King's right-hand man on the day he was assassinated is Dr. Bernard Lafayette. And he's a icon, you know, a legend, civil rights legend, and he's still alive. And uh, anyway, he was there and I went around interviewing people. And so I went to Gandhi's granddaughter and great grandson and interviewed them. And then I went to the Dalai Lama's um, special assistant, interviewed him. And I went, anyway, I got to Dr. Bernard Lafayette and I said, um, what would you like to tell the brothers behind the wire back in America? You know, cause I told him a little bit about what I do and stuff. And, and he said, um, don't stop what you're doing. He said, we haven't seen anybody do, do it quite like you're doing it to take it into the places you're going. And he said on, on the last, the day, Dr. Uh, Dr. King's last day on earth, he pulled me aside. This is Dr. Uh, Bernard Lafayette. And he said, Bernard, the next thing we have to do is institutionalize nonviolence. And he meant take it into the schools. And, uh, and then he put Bernard on a plane to go to D.C., and organized the poor people's campaign. They were getting ready to have that poor people's March on Washington, but then Dr. King was assassinated that day. So by the time Dr. Lafayette got on the ground, he heard the AP announcement, you know, that, that he had been killed. And so he looked at me and said, keep doing what you're doing because you and others are fulfilling Martin's last wish. And I was like, well, hell it's on now. I can't, how am I ever going to quit? <laughs> yeah. You're, yeah. You, you, you can't, you, not that you would have anyway, but now you've, had basically a um it's like a medium talking to you like you know this guy is talking through or or king talking through this guy yeah and i got to connect with the gandhis that's kind of cool and then like to the kings that's pretty cool and i got a, a videotaped message to nelson mandela before he died saying here's what you've done in the united states in the prisons and the schools i was told he saw it so my three heroes, somehow I got connected to them. And so it's just been a magical ride, man. I'm a knucklehead, but God loves knuckleheads. And I, you know, I love what I do. It's, it's been a hustle. I mean, I'm telling you, there've been times where I was tempted to quit. There've been times where I was opposed. There was been times where I was taking on massive debt. There were times when my marriage was really struggling because I was on the road all the time, but we were struggling financially because of this crazy dream. So I want people to know that, you know, things that kind of look glorious behind the scenes is, is suffering and pain. You know what I'm saying? To, to hustle and not give up on your dream. And so, you know, somehow, some way he's continued to sustain it. And now it looks like we finally reached the tipping point where there's enough demand and credibility around this thing where maybe some, some huge strides are about to be made. I mean, you know, if the government or whoever the hell funds prisons could, would just take just a small portion of the money they spend Hell, if they would just legalize marijuana and let the people out yeah, that that are in for marijuana, they'd have enough money to fund this project all over the country. Yeah, absolutely right. Because I mean, how much does it cost to house a prisoner each year? Do you know? It, it costs more than uh, a college education. Definitely, yeah. It's it's they're going to spend about fifty thousand dollars to incarcerate for a year someone on close security. Holy shit. Exactly. 
and we could get someone um, educated fully for about 30. So it's almost twice as much to incarcerate a dude, but they're making the States huge money. <laughs> you know, this is a multi-billion dollar industry and the products for people. Well, and, and that's just it. It's a business. Unfortunately, I hate to say that, but it's the damn truth. It's a business. Huge. And now private corporations are buying prisons, which is very dangerous because now it's about the bottom line. And I think you're, listeners need to know this it's a broken system built to fail there we test third graders literacy and based on those findings we being the united states this system the uh, incarcerated complex you know the prison industrial system they know where to build prisons because they know where kids not learning to read they will choose the streets and then they'll put together a, a place for them to stay well now the the state signs a contract with that private prison owner is these big corporations and they commit to always having at least 85% of the beds filled. Okay. So now there's a monetary incentive to fill those beds. And the easiest way to do it is these drug charges. Yeah. Once, once you get a number, well now they're starting to buy into pardons and paroles. Now think about how dangerous this is. They're building more prisons than schools, and now we have the power to incarcerate you and revoke you if we want to to keep the beds filled. That's real. You gotta be shitting me. Mm -mm. And then they learn, you know, a third of the the inmates go in for nonviolent offenses, but two thirds of them coming out violent because of the hell they got to live in in there. Because I guess you, I mean, look, I mean, our mutual friend, and I won't say his name on here, but our mutual friend. Um, you know, I, I was the, I think I was either the first or second person the last time he went in mm -hmm. to, to know. And I, and I honestly can't, I didn't know. I didn't know for two years. I thought, I didn't know if he was dead. I didn't know if he relapsed. I didn't, the last fucking thing I thought was he was in prison. Yeah. Well, I mean, eventually I started thinking, well, maybe that's the case, but, 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 he would have been able to reach out. And finally it was because of the shame of what, it, I mean, really it wasn't even his fault. You know, the story I'm certain. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I know everybody's thinking, probably thinking, well, of course it wasn't his fault. Everybody says that, but really in this situation, it really wasn't his fault. Like he, yeah. he, whatever we will yeah. go into all that, I get it. I get but, but you know, I know that he, he's, he's my, my best friend. So he's one of the nicest guys. He'd give the shirt off your back, and you know that. Totally true. And got stabbed while he was in mm -hmm. prison for a nonviolent crime. Mm-hmm. Totally. And it's yeah. wild to me. Yeah. And then the schools are now the pipelines to the prison. I mean, it's a system. And I and here's where I tell the inmates: if you want them to change it just because it's wrong, that's like people of color in the fifties wanting them to change Jim Crow laws because it was wrong. Well, the powers that be are never going to change a system that's working for them and, unless they're, you know, shamed into it. Okay. Now I know a lot of officers and wardens and deputy wardens and commissioners that are good people. And it's not like they're evil scientists that are, this is a system that's run by money. We know this, right? Right. So I tell the brothers, I'm like, look, in the same way that Dr. King marched young people into cities and 
the country saw on their TVs at night the brutality that was going on against people of color in the South, only then was there pressure for the for it to change. And so in the same way, if we want to change a broken prison system, it's those brothers behind the wire that are going to have to make the first move. And we've got to do that. And they've been telling me for years, if you get the other side to change, then we'll work with you. And I'm like, just hang on. We're, we're heading that way. Well, now one of the coolest developments here recently is twofold. They're actually, I've created a program where we, tra- we train police officers. And <laughs> I know. In, they're tra- in, in prison? Uh-uh. In the <laughs> world, in police department. Okay. okay. I'm like, how the hell does that work? So, so now I can go back to the brothers on the inside and say, look, we're working on the other side, but you got to keep giving me ammo. You got to keep showing me results because they're going to work with us. If we start, you know, there's wins in this, if we can bring down the violence, but one of the coolest things, and I could have never planned this Corey is I'm getting now police department. We got five police departments so far we're working with and they're, they have what's called a forfeiture fund. Okay. So when they bust a drug dealer and they seize cash and jewelry and cars and blah, 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 and that dude goes away, that money goes into a fund and it's called the forfeiture fund and they can use it for equipment or vests or cars or training or whatever. But there's a little asterisk that I found out about from one of my police chiefs that said it can be used for community service projects. So we've got police chiefs that are dipping into the bad guy fund and putting it into the program in their local school. So the bad guys are paying for the programs that's going to keep the kids from getting to them. <laughs> that is fantastic. Isn't that cool? Wow. Yeah. That and is I didn't dream up any of this. All I did is just keep moving forward and you know see what he's gonna do next. So here we are. Kind of crazy, huh? I, like I don't even know. I had no idea what I was getting into today before I got on this call. I mean, I knew you were a great guy. We had talked before, but I didn't know all of this. I had no idea. Like, and now the, the the winds are starting to swirl because now with social media, I don't know if you've seen much of it, but there's more and more stories being released about the horrible conditions in the prisons and about, you know, uh, long-term sentences being overturned by DNA evidence and just a lot, there's awareness being created. And I've always wanted to make a difference on the legislative level because we don't change some policies well, Georgia's got a new governor, and regardless of politics, part of his platform is this problem that we have with gangs on the streets. And, um, and so I was tapped and invited um, to sit on a committee um, with the Georgia State uh, House of Representatives, and it's the Committee on Youth Gangs and Violence. And so I sit on a 10-member committee with a couple of congressmen and women, commissioner of the Department of Juvenile Justice, Homeland Security, DFACS, the School Board of Georgia, and they wanted a couple of civilians on the thing, so I'm one of those. And so we got to write our recommendations for how we would attack this problem, and it's been presented to the governor. So now one of the things I've been praying about is that we can affect change with legislation and appropriation. And my seat at the table is basically, and this wouldn't have been touched if I hadn't have gotten to sit at this table. And we did a tour of different cities around the country with the press, no, around the state, with a press conference and then a panel discussion, experts presenting to us and then us making recommendations to the governor and the House uh, Speaker. 
And mine was, and every time we had a meeting, I was like the squeaky wheel. And they knew when I raised my hand, I was going to fight for programs in the prisons. Cause I'm like, gentlemen and ladies, if 40% of the affiliated active gang members of the 75,000 in Georgia that we know of, if 40% of them are locked up and we don't have programs to catch them there, what the heck are we doing? And so they didn't have anybody else arguing that case. And so, you know, he keeps giving us a bigger stage and a bigger voice. And I think that I just have to believe we're going to have, we're going to see some changes. Wow. I mean, you've already seen a massive amount of change. So how would one, you know, being out of state, how would one help you from, you know, being out of state, being, you know, I'm in North Carolina. I would love to be a part of this movement. This is unreal. Um, how would somebody like me help you? Uh, because I'd love to be of service. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, I think, um, you know, eventually as this thing spreads, I, I kind of built it by going wherever I was invited. <laughs> so that's what got me all over the place. But, you know, that's basically just telling stories and, and, you know, creating a little momentum in different areas. But now we have focused most intensely on my city and my county, Marietta, Georgia, Cobb County, um, which is, you know, basically a, one of the Fulton County, Cobb County, Gwinnett County, especially Marietta and a city of Atlanta is very important. So we're focusing on all the schools in Cobb County, which is 17 public um, and one uh, city school. Um, and then Hancock state prison has become our flagship there. And then we're going to systematically grow into other counties. And then it would make the most sense to grow into Southern states. I've already done a prisoner two in North Carolina, Alabama, most of the Southern states, but just tickling it. Right. And so to answer your question, you know, there's going to be a time for volunteers. We're always looking for creative fundraising, you know, partners. Um, and then just, you know, help with social media blast to spread awareness. Um, so I'll have better answers for that as we, I've got the right board now. So right now it's been me against the world, you know, me and a frequent flyer miles and a debit card, (laughs) you know, and a dream, you know, and now, I've assembled a board that we have um, a mayor, a police chief, a superintendent, a state championship football coach, a city council president. You know, it's a who's a prominent attorney. We have a dozen real movers and shakers that surround my work that is really going to take us to a new place. Um, So I think in the meantime, anybody that's interested um, you could go to Amazon and get uh, one of my books is called peace behind the wire. And it tells the story that we've touched on just a little bit, but I would love for people to read it. And if it speaks to them to give it to somebody that they think needs to know the story that can get us, you know, invited to where we want to go. So can you get uh, it? I'm, I, you know, obviously you'll know the answer to this, but I mean, how hard is it to get those books into prisons if you don't say a guy like me decides to buy some of those books and and try to get it into a a North Carolina prison how would I do that well it can be as easy as um you know finding the the people that you want to get it to in the prison it could be you know the warden which is usually a little harder but deputy warden over 
treatment and care, deputy warden over security. You know, there's people that are tasked with running the programs. I would love it if more of them read the book. I think for families that have incarcerated people, I mean, I've always wanted this to happen. It just hadn't shown up yet, but I would love it if the book got enough, you know, exposure so that people that have loved ones inside, you can go to Amazon and ship it straight to the prison. They won't mm. let you ship the book, you know, yourself to the prison because it could have, there's all kinds of ways to get contraband. Right. But it's straight from Amazon to the prison to the inmate is how you do that. Amazon delivers straight to the prison. They, they are bigger than I thought. I mean, I know they're big, obviously that was, but, but wow, I, I never would have anticipated that. Yeah. That's insane. That is insane. Because now the families, now the inmates, now we haven't had, a lot of them have expressed this desire, but these two million men, and there's another few hundred thousand women that are locked up in the land of the free, right? We've made incarceration a business like nobody else. There's not another country that comes close to the number. We have 5% of the world's population here in the United States, and we lock up 25% of the world uh, incarcerated population. Okay. And so, I mean, that's staggering. So we have created a beast of an industry around locking people up. No human beings have ever created that, but the United States. And so it's, you know, it's, it needs to be, it needs to be changed. But now I've got these brothers. Now think about it. I mean, this is a a badass gangster who's got a lot of power. He's got tats on his face right? in the prison doing a long term, maybe life. And he's involved in that whole gang life. When a brother like that comes to me and says, Hey, I know people on the street that have money. They would throw money at this. Now, how can we do that? And I'm like, connect me with people on the street. So this is what these guys have. I mean, they, people would be surprised if they knew who these brothers really are. And all we got to do is treat them with respect, feed them what they need and ask them to help. And magic happens. That's insane. I mean, hits are put off. Riots have been put down. I mean, active threats have been stopped. I mean, it's like miracles have happened. I could, I got, I've forgotten more stories than I remember. And I've got a lot of stories, you know, in the streets. So were you nervous going in? You know what? That did. He got even set me up with that because the kid that I was working with who became the MS-13, you know, guy. And for those that don't know what that is, it's the most dangerous gang in America by far. So as far as the FBI and, and um, Homeland Security and NSA, they, it's kind of like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, MS-13. Okay, that's, they have 10,000 soldiers and they just kill people, man. They're just, well, I had an active threat from them on me because I was working with one of their dudes and that was kind of crazy because I get a text. You don't want to get a text from, from a gang saying what they told me. <laughs> and so I had a cop car sitting in my cult I'm having to tell my wife, I'm so sorry, baby. I'm, what the hell? Did, what did it say? What did the text say? Oh, it's so, it's so, it's so disgusting. I can't say it on the air, man. Well, why? I mean, it's my podcast. You can say whatever the hell you want. <laughs> I mean, basically, if you do this, we will do this. They said, you better, you better stop talking to that beep or we're going to give you beep mother beep and so i had to take that down to the gang task force and say hey this is from ms13 inside a facility 
and they put a cop car in the cul-de-sac and made me read to get a gun and register it and all this stuff teach me how to go through lights and all this stuff and i'm like what is this really happening so i experienced some of teach that you to go through like red lights you mean yeah, they're telling me if you if someone takes three turns with you, well, then just go ahead and get through the red light, call 911. So I'm having to, to deal with this. This is years ago. In Atlanta, by the way, which is the absolute worst traffic on the effing planet. <laughs> <laughs> now, nothing ever came of that, but, you know, we didn't know at the time. And But anyway, it was my work with him. And for two years, I got with him and studied through the glass you know, with him on a phone because he was yeah. in a high security lockup and I taught him the Bible and he taught me the gang life and nobody knows about the inside of the gang life. If you're a free world dude, like yeah. I do, because I've had so many of them trust me and teach me and they teach me because they want me to know the game so I can help them better. Right. They, they don't do that. And so to answer your question, because I had this experience with this kid that I didn't fear, like if they just said, Hey, we want you to go start working with this MS 13 gang leader. That's looking at a death penalty. Well, I'd probably been a bit nervous, but it wasn't that it was my buddy that I knew when he was 12, that now is 25 looking at this capital murder case. And so I just wanted to rescue my buddy. But once he started teaching me things and I started seeing him change by the time I went into my first prison, I was fascinated. I couldn't wait to get there. And so that's kind of how God did that. So I didn't go in with judgment um, or fear because he had already shown me some things, you know. So so everything had to be perfect for this thing to work out. You yeah, know? I mean, absolutely. So I just out of curiosity, I mean, you're probably the only guy that I know that can answer this is, you know, when these guys get in the gang, they do whatever they have to do to get in. But for them to exit the gang, how does that work typically? What is an exit strategy if the guy, you know, turn, maybe he finds Jesus or whatever and decides he's, he's done, doesn't want to be in the gang anymore. How does that work? It depends on the gang. I mean, okay. sometimes it's like a no, you know, it ain't going to happen. If you try to leave us, you know, it's worst case scenario. For a lot of them, there's ways to get in and there's ways to get out getting out it it sucks because basically like for instance i got a buddy in a prison up in ohio he was an aryan brotherhood guy now they're very dangerous their specialty is contract murder okay so if you want to murder a guy that the aryans will basically take it out for a price okay so and you got guys doing life without you know you can't put more time on them (laughs) right right so anyway it's a guy that, that i really respect um very strong spiritual guy well, he got to the part exactly like you said for, for, for Jesus. He's like, man, I can't do this anymore. So he went to them and said, you know, I got to get out. And they said, well, you know what that means. And he's like, let's do it. And so they set it up and he gets stomped out. I mean, basically, if you want out, we're going to stomp you out. And what the hell does that, what does that mean? They're just going to beat the hell out of you and stomp on top of you until you're, you're, you know, usually it's amount of time. Okay. So like in the, in the thirteens, you're stomped out for 13 seconds and it's five or six guys that are literally just beating the hell out of you for a certain amount of time. They're timing it. And then if you can, you get past that, you've earned your stripes. They might make you put in some work, believe it or not. Sometimes it's, you got to kill somebody because they're going to, that shows them that you're all in. 
sadly, girls are joining gangs now. Girls are even starting to to get rank in in gangs, which we've never seen. Girls many times are sexed in, so it can be a gang rape to join the the you know the right. The, so you know it depends, and so this guy he got stomped out, and and he endured it. Now he's untouchable. Now they respect you. Hey. You know, you can't ever, 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 they're not going to protect you anymore. Don't ever see them, talk to them, ask them for anything, but you're off limits. They're not going to hit you. Anything. Well, so what happens with, if you're, you know, most gangs, right, have a tattoo of some type or a branding or have, they have something on their body to affiliate them, right? Mm-hmm. What happens to that? You get it covered up. Okay. It's going to be a prerequisite. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of, you know, guys on the inside and their hustle is tattoos. You know, you can get sure. I mean, a guy I'm working with right now, Hancock, he's the, the leader of the Muslims. Um, he, his whole arm is nothing but black now because uh, he was affiliated with another group and he got all that covered up, you know, so you can do it. I've even got one, you know, my, my tattoo is a story. It's all the places I've been and the significant developments and all the prisons and cultures and stuff. And so mine's a story, but I had one on there that was, you know, I have different um, faith traditions represented. So if I'm dealing with a Muslim brother, he's going to see himself there. If I'm dealing with a Buddhist brother or a Jewish brother or a Hindu brother, you're going to find yourself in the tattoo. Right. Right. And so I put the star of David on there you know, from my Jewish brothers. Well, I was asked to go down to Jackson where the, the Hymax is in Georgia and their death row is there and they keep all the really, really high profile, high risk guys there. And the guy who is a very, very national blood leader um, is there. And he was the first one that was convicted in the state of Georgia um, for murder and a life sentence at 13. So at 13, he caught a life sentence and he's 35 now. He's been there for way too long. So they had, the commissioner asked me if I would go sit with him and talk to him because they want to let him go, but they can't because he keeps, every time they let him out of 24, you know, isolation, he gets a hold of a cell phone and starts calling shots, you know, and so they can't let him go, but they want to because there's a lot of political pressure. You've had this kid since he was 13, and he's been there over 20 years, and he was only supposed to do 14. So... Anyway, so I go and get with him, and as we're talking, he doesn't know me while I'm there, but we end up spending an hour and a half together. He really shows me respect. But anyway, he keeps glancing down at my tattoo and all my tattoos, and he's like, why you got that one right there? And it's it's the one that I had put on there, the Star of David, which is a six points. Well, the Bloods, their deal is five points, not six. Okay, so there's different gangs that have different symbols. Well, that that was a problem for him. And he looked down and I said, it's a star of David. You know, it's for my Jewish brothers. He said, not in my world. And so what I did, I definitely left there, went to my tattoo artist, got it covered up for him. You know, because my commitment was, all right, I need you to see this. I respect you, bro. I'm not going to disrespect you. Wow. So there's way that is a big deal in, in that world. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That makes, I mean, I, I would, I really didn't think that's where you were headed. Honestly, I didn't really, I thought you were going to say I got it and got the hell out of there, but, <laughs> but it makes complete sense what you did because you had, well, really you had no choice. If you really wanted to help this guy, you kind of had to make that sacrifice in order for him to feel comfortable. 
which makes yeah, sense. Well. They have to, it's trust, man. It's respect and trust. I've learned more from them about respect, integrity, and loyalty than I ever learned in the free world because there it means something. You disrespect somebody on the inside, there's different consequences that if I disrespect you out here in the free world. If I disrespect you, you might not, you know, be cool with me anymore, might not talk anymore, might not hang out. I disrespect you on the inside, there's consequences, right? Same with loyalty. If I say, Corey, I got you, bro. You need me on any time, I'll be there for you. And you call me and say, hey, can you come? And I go, yeah, I'll be there. And I don't show up. Well, I've lost a friend. You do that on the inside and you got problems, right? Major problems, I imagine. Integrity. Out here, the word means something. It's like, hey, will you do my podcast? Got you, bro. Give me my word. And then today it's crickets. You can't find me. Well, that's going to be a problem for our working relationship. But if you give your word in there and you break it, you got drunk. And so they taught me the power of these principles that people just kind of wink at in the free world. Doesn't mean a lot. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely makes sense. Yeah, I needed them, man. I, I really did. It wasn't, you know, they needed me. Right. I needed them as bad as they needed me because I was a preacher who had lost his heart and sure. lost voice and so that's why i owe them <laughs> you know how can i ever leave them right yeah. well i mean especially with how much traction you've i mean like what you've done is just i i can't it's really hard for me to even wrap my head around what you're doing like i just it's almost like it's made up it's like <laughs> some shit you'd see in a movie that you know is just a damn movie <laughs> it's not believable almost is it it's really not Dude, some of the stories, like, you know, an Aryan Brotherhood leader had been down 37 years. He's the leader of the of the Aryan Brotherhoods. He comes to our program at a prison in the Midwest because the warden said, I want you to be there. And he's like, I don't want to go. And he said, go one day. And if you don't like it, don't come back. Well, he ended up completing the program. But you understand the Aryan Brotherhood, this white Nazis. I mean, they, they ain't messing around with other colors. Well, he sat at a table with a bunch of young black brothers for the whole eight weeks for each weekly segment and doing the daily exercises and stuff. And he was chosen to speak at the um, graduation ceremony. He got choked up in front of everybody. And this guy's big. He's got a long beard, long hair, Coke bottle glasses. He's got a scar where somebody tried to bite his nose off. He's done hard time for, you know, 30 some odd years. And he gets up and he sheds a couple tears and he looks over at those brothers. He said, 40 days ago, I would not even sit with them. I certainly wouldn't eat with them. And he said, now I might not live with them, meaning I might not share a cell. He said, but those brothers over there, that's my family. That's wow. like, that's like miracle of God stuff in a prison for them to, Say shit in front of their guys that could cost him, man. I mean that that could cost him. Well, that'd be a riot anywhere else, right? Every, in every prison, there's crazy stories like that. Like I said, somebody that I've forgotten about these heroes, man. They're doing great things. That's insane. And nobody ever gets to know. I'm the only one that gets to see it. But full circle. On in April, we'll have our graduation celebration for that group down at Hancock State Prison, and I'm going to invite Free World guys. I mean, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm going to invite that commissioner from the DJJ. I'm going to invite the congressman that chairs our committee. I'm going to invite some who's who, 
And they're going to see these guys that have reputation as the guys that are causing trouble. And they're going to hear them eloquently get up and read a paper that they've written about the power of peace and about their hero, whether it's King or Gandhi. And every time we do it, the free world guests, they look and they go, how did you do that? And I said, I didn't do anything. What you're seeing, it's been inside of him all the time. It just needed to be brought out. And you guys have never asked him to help, certainly never given him a mic. Right. And so right. change the perception of these lawmakers and, you know, the ones that are running things when they start seeing these hated, fear, forgotten men, that they really do have magic inside, just like all of us do. They just need a platform. Well, now if they've stood up and I've told them, look, you've always wanted the powers that be to see you. I'm going to give you a chance to shine. Make sure. the most of it because it ain't going to hurt you. Right. The guys that, that completed our program, they get a certificate and that certificate means something to them. And I always tell them, Hey man, take it before a parole board, you know, give it to the, you know, let the warden see your work, give it to your mom who wants to be proud of you. But I got a call from the, the board of pardons and paroles in the state of Georgia. There's only seven people that sit on that committee and they decide who goes home and who doesn't. I got a call from them and they said, uh, Mr. Cummings, we're looking at a guy and he's got life without the possibility of parole. We we're trying to see if we can downgrade him to life with the possibility, which basically is them saying here, we're going to give you hope. Right. There's a chance you go home one day. That's a huge, there ain't a bigger deal for a guy all day long to say, Hey, and so regardless if they actually ever go home, give them hope. Yeah. Just uh, that glimmer of hope, that sliver. That hope is a dangerous thing in a prison because once you allow hope back in your heart, it means you can be crushed again. And and they're afraid of that just like human beings are. And so anyway, he said, I said, what's his name? And he said his name. And I was like, I don't, uh, there's too many guys out there. I don't know his name. And I said, can I look him up and get back to you? So he said, yep, call me back. So I get on the computer, go to the GDOC website, because it's public information. You can look the guy up, find out what his charge is, his sentence, all that. Anybody who wants to can. And so I get on there, and as soon as I put his name in, his face pops up, and I'm like, that's Chicago, you know, the guy (laughs) from Chicago. So I call him back, and I said, sir, yes, I can vouch for him. He was awesome. He did great. So out there. I got to believe there's a dude that now has hope and and he might go home one day and it's because he completed this program. It's like that. That's why there's such demand. Guys want this piece of paper, man. Of course. I mean, nothing else out there like it. And so, you know, in, in uh, one of our States, uh, the, the warden had the idea to, put an open call out anybody that wants to be in the next round of the power piece project. And, uh, and I said, you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Give other guys a chance. So there's 1200 men in that prison, 700. Holy shit. I can't do 700. And so I went back to the ward and I said, how am I going to do 700? So we did 200, which is the biggest I've ever done. But that is the biggest problem we have is the demand issue. Because I got guys meet me in the yard going, hey, bro, how come you didn't choose me? And I'm like, I'm not choosing this. I mean, all I do is work with those they give me. That's a great problem to have. Shit, yeah. 
because we'll come back and do the next round and we'll catch another hundred guys, you know. And, and it's only an eight week program, right? Mm-hmm. So technically, so, so how many of these, you know, do you run? So if you run eight weeks, what happens then? Do you, do you take a, a time to go do other shit? Uh, what yeah, do you yeah, do? Good question. So the plan at Hancock will be, okay, we complete this program in April. We take probably somewhere between a month, two months off. And then we come back with a new round of guys. But those guys get to loosely be a part of this program. So the graduates now, we want to keep them going. And so we want them to come in and and spur on the next group. And then that group will come by. We'll wait another month to two months, and we'll do another one. So theoretically, we could get 300 men through the program. That's 25% of the prison. If you've got 25% of the dudes that are pretty influential, all trying to be peacemakers, I mean, we have a prison out there that saw a decrease in violence 50% over two years. Wow. It's insane. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the model works um, if, if I get full support. And with this one, I get, I've get i got full support. So It certainly sounds like it. I mean, I don't know how anybody would not be able to support something that's doing so much. I mean, this is just unreal. You know, your work is, you, you got a lot of, you still got a lot of work to do. <laughs> you think? Hell yeah. But it's fantastic because, you know, it's just going to grow from here. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. It's about the tip. So, yeah, well, I appreciate your fascination in it, man. It's, um. This is like, I, I had no idea what a treat I was in for. And when people hear this, like, wow, this is yeah. insane, dude. Well, thanks for giving me a you know, a platform. I appreciate it. I rely on this. This is how we got to get the message out. Absolutely. And, you know, I, once we stop recording, I'll tell you what's next on my agenda with, which is somebody with somebody that's local with you. Okay. Um, so, uh, so just hang tight in a, so I can stop the recording. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, man, this has been, I don't even know how long we've been talking, but I don't even care. It's been fantastic. I am. I've learned so much today. Well, you've you've been you've done a good job, man. Keep doing this because you ask good questions, but your enthusiasm comes through very strong. You know, there's yeah, this was good. It was an easy interview because you good. led it the right way. So congratulations, man. I hope this thing gets a big following and and helps you. Um, not not this interview. I mean your your podcast. No, your, I of course. Yes, yeah, so appreciate you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Just hang tight. So really quick, uh, Kit, where can the listeners find you on social and all your information? Can you tell me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, powerofpeace.net. Okay. Um, you can look up uh, Power of Peace Project. Just Google it. Um, KitCummings.com or just put my name in Google. Um, social media, easy to find. On Facebook, Kit Cummings. LinkedIn under my name, Instagram, Kit Cummings 88, Twitter, PowerPiece 88. But anyway, you know, it's pretty easy to find with just a name and, and, uh, and I'll pop up, but yeah, I would love for people to, to connect, um, and you know, spread the word. Absolutely. Well, perfect. I want to thank you again for tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. If you have not already subscribed, 
please do. And look, if you really enjoyed today's episode, email me at successfullifepodcast at gmail.com and tell me what it was you enjoyed. And if there's somebody that you want me to bring on, then email me about that and tell me who it is. And I'll make sure it happens. So, you know, leave us a review, tell a friend, and until next time, folks, have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Successful Life Podcast. We hope today's insights have ignited your passion and provided tools to shape your leadership journey. Remember, greatness is a journey, not a destination. Continue your pursuit by exploring more resources and insights over at coreybarrier.com. Until next time, keep leading, keep learning, and keep striving for excellence. Stay inspired and see you on the next episode.